I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Has James Winston earned enough job security not to be challenged by another quarterback in camp? And who do you see the Bucks releasing to get under this salary cap? What if the Rays miss the playoffs, but they spend less money than last year? Should fans be upset about that? And did the Lightning's loss to Boston last week expose any deficiencies going into the postseason? We answer all your mailbag questions next. And the Grand Prix of St. Petersburg is Saturday. There's racing all weekend. There's a co-owner of the team named Steinbrenner. We'll tell you how a driver will honor Dan Weldon, as well as the favorite to win the race as we talk to Times reporter Matt Baker in just a minute. We've got all of this and more on this edition of Sports Day Tampa Bay. I'm Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay Times, along with producer Steve Versnick. Hey, this podcast is growing, and if you have a business, we'd love for you to grow with us. Our advertisers are seeing some great success, which is why they've been with us so long. So if you'd like to be a part of this show, a sponsor, we've got lots of new ways you can do that, and we'd love to have you as part of our team. Just contact us on Twitter at SportsDayTB, or you can reach me at NFL Stroud, or my email address is rstroud at tampabay.com. We'd look forward to hearing from you. All right, Steve, lots of great mailbag questions. We'll get to Matt Baker and his uh, preview of the Grand Prix of St. Petersburg in just a minute, but let's get started. All right, well, Ellis asked first, if the Bucks were to reach a deal with Quan Alexander, would they still consider drafting linebacker Devin White with the fifth pick? Absolutely, I think they would. Um, they're going to a 3-4. Both those guys are, are sort of inside linebackers, which is fine because you got a couple of them in a 3-4 uh, situation like that they both are very similar with their passion for the game the way they run to the football Devin White's a little bigger body so he could probably play more more of the the Mike linebacker if you will at 240 pounds um, not going to put him in coverage as much but Quan Alexander we know you'd have two guys that could just absolutely run to the ball and hit and you still have Levante David and then you would stand up somebody um, you know like Carl Nassib or or Jason Pierre-Paul you could do some things with the front as well. So that would be quite a collection of linebackers. I don't know. I don't think it precludes. I mean, look, if Devin White is the best player at number five, then that's probably, and, you, and you're not going to trade out of that pick, that's probably who they're going to take, right? And a lot of mock drafts have him with Devin White. I think defensive line is so deep that, you know, they, they may go that direction. But you, you could also uh, perhaps get the linebacker first, and if you traded back a spot or so, uh, maybe pick up uh, you know one of the defensive linemen later in the in the first round. So you just have to see how everything shakes out. But I, I don't think it precludes them if they sign Quan Alexander, who remember is coming off an ACL. So you're taking a little bit of a gamble. He should be ready in four months to resume football activities. But sometimes it's a year later that people are completely recovered from that surgery. So you just don't know what kind of player you're going to get. So yeah, I would. I would plan on the, the long term as well as the short term, and I, I don't think it precludes them at all. All right, Buck North asks, who do you see the Bucks releasing or trading to get under the cap? I see the potential for Cam Brate, even DeMar Dotson as cap casualties. 
I would say Cam Brate's not going to be a cap casualty, and the reason I say that is that you know they would attempt to trade him first, which couldn't mean the same thing. And I know you're trying to save money, seven million dollars. But look, there are there are tight ends that are signing in this league that don't catch patches um, like Cam does for for six and seven million dollars. He he does not have an above market value. He's produced uh, I think eighteen touchdowns in the last three years. One of the top uh, tight ends in terms of the red zone. And last year he played with a bad hip. I mean, he needed surgery, but he put it off until the end of the year and managed to play all season with that thing when he could have shut it down. So for all those reasons and, and the fact that Bruce Arians is, is enamored with the idea of having a guy like O.J. Howard that he could pair with Cam Brayton. And, and, you know, Bruce has never been a big two tight end guy, but he sees the value in that and he's going to try to create mismatches. I don't think Cam Brayton is going anywhere uh, this year. DeMar Dotson, uh, I, I don't see him as a cap casualty per se. I mean, look, he's in his 11th season. They certainly need to come up with another right tackle at some point. You know, his play really went up and down just based on the number of injuries he had. But he played hurt. He played through all of them. I think that they'll probably try to, to draft and or develop a, a right tackle. I mean, you still have guys uh, that are on this team like an Alex Kappa. Um, you know, the, the plan is to move Caleb Beninock back to tackle permanently because he certainly couldn't play guard. So Beninock may compete with Dotson to see who wins that job. And Caleb is certainly a younger player there. So uh, I, I don't know that Dotson, you know, you, you need a bunch of offensive linemen. and It's good to have experience, even if even if he's um, not starting. And, and I, if I believe his salary is not prohibitive, I mean, it's, it's probably four or five million dollars at this point. Um, so for a starting right tackle, that's that's really not a, a, a bad price. So I don't see him as a cap casualty. I think there are other guys that, that you could cut before you get to DeMar Dotson. As far as guys that I think they're going to have to consider releasing, I mean, look, uh, you, you've got to do something with Mitch Unrein. That's, that's a situation I hear is complicated with respect to his concussion and whether he can pass a physical and Injury, well, guarantees against injury and stuff like that. So that, that'll eventually happen, I think. That's not a lot of money, not a lot of savings. I think you have to look at William Golson, uh, who is, you know, did not produce last year. I'm not sure where he fits in this whole 3-4 alignment with, with Vita Vea and Jason Pierre-Paul. And, um, you know, essentially he lost his, his job uh, to Carl Nassib last year. So I'm not sure that, uh, you know, he's a guy that, that, that you couldn't uh, end up releasing, um, you know, uh, you look at Bo Allen is another player that they brought in here that they didn't get a whole lot of production, a defensive tackle. Uh, and, and then the biggest one, and I, I still maintain that this is going to happen. I don't know what, what form or when it will take place, but Deshaun Jackson is, is a $10 million cap hit and the money's not guaranteed. I know they want to trade him. That is their goal. Uh, they will tell you that they will, they'll want to play with him because, I mean, that's, that's you know <laughs> – as soon as you say you don't want a guy, you, you're essentially going to have to release him and you're going to get no compensation. So, um, you know, and maybe, look, maybe injuries happen and he winds up being here. I, I think, though, if you're all in on Jameis Winston, you want to create an environment where he can succeed. Having a, a wide receiver that absolutely doesn't want to play with Jameis and won't be here in the offseason to work with him or learn the playbook or learn the offense is, are not things that are going to help your quarterback as good of a player as he is. And I, and he's clearly made it clear he doesn't want to be here because, you know, he asked for a trade last year. He went on the Super Bowl uh, during the media tour and told people he wanted to play for the Rams. I mean, that, that doesn't sound like a guy that's all in, even though he had a good meeting, one meeting with Bruce Arians. So I think Jackson eventually, whether it's through a trade 
or a release is somebody that they they have to consider because it's ten million dollars. That's you know for for one season under paragraph five, as they say, uh, the base salary or or a prorated signing bonus figured in, you could get a pretty good player for that. Uh, certainly, you could get Quan Alexander or Adam Humphreys, no doubt. So uh, I'm just looking at this and thinking, you know, you're spending twenty million on Mike Evans, seven million on Cam Brate. You have Chris Godwin. Um, you know, you you've got. Uh, to decide on Adam Humphreys, you may draft uh, another, you know, another wide receiver somewhere in there. You still got Justin Watson, so uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, it's a target-rich environment and then a lot of money devoted to that. So I don't know if, if you really want to sink that 10 million into a 32-year-old guy that doesn't want to play for the Bucks. We'll see. We'll see how they end up. But that that's just my thoughts about what's on the table right now. Jim asked. You briefly mentioned Jameis uh, and also how Bruce Arians doesn't want him looking over his shoulder. In my opinion, that is BS, and that method of signing a number two quarterback is a disservice to the team and the fans. I hope he's successful, but has he really earned that much job security? I don't know that he's earned it, but he's going to get it. And the reason is that's just Bruce's philosophy. Um, You know, Bruce looked at last year and what happened, what went on here, and of course a lot of it was because of Jameis getting suspended and forcing Ryan Fitzpatrick to begin the season. And then we know Ryan had such a great start. Um, you, you make a good point. Uh, you know, there there are quarterbacks that are going to go down, whether it's for one, two, three games or the whole season. I mean, this is that kind of league. We've seen Jameis miss three games before. We've seen him play hurt before. And, and so it's realistic to think, especially in Bruce's offense, which the quarterback takes a lot of hits. You know, he doesn't – he gets five eligible. He doesn't leave a lot of guys in to block – um, it's, it's pretty much quarterback has to get the ball out of his hands. So I understand, um, sort of where you're coming from, but I would just say, you know, we'll see if Bruce was right because he lost Carson Palmer one year and they were nine and one, uh, they went to Drew Stanton and he got hurt, I believe. And then they were down to their third quarterback, which was like Ryan Lindley or something. And they wound up losing, uh, a lot. So he knows he's been on both sides of it. He's seen his starter go down and not really have a great one to turn to. I think he wants to create competition behind Jameis Winston, whether that they re-sign Ryan Griffin or they bring in a guy like Stan. They 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 went out go out and get a, a a you know a number two, but but the idea is let's give Jameis in this fifth season every single ability to succeed. And part of that is they felt like and and Jameis has all but said this that he was looking over his shoulder last year. So if you bring Ryan Fitzpatrick back, even though he's a serviceable backup and you know, did some things, um, the same situation could be created either in preseason or regular season or people, the fans calling, um, you know, calling for the backup. If you have a guy that's clearly not the same ability level but can get you through a few games if you need him and be functional and maybe win a game or two if you need him to, um, then then you, you, you push Jameis out there as, as the, you know, uncontested uh, starter and the whole team knows because they, they're not going to get divided over the quarterback situation. They're not going to think suddenly that the backup would be a better option. So, you know, this is all a part, a part of, of making Jameis Winston as comfortable and as successful as possible because you have essentially one year to try to see if this can work in the long term, and that's why Bruce is here. All right, Buck North asked a second question. He says, how many Bucks are top ten at their respective positions? I've got Mike Evans and Ali Marpet on the offense. Levante David, JPP, and McCoy on defense. Isn't the lack of talent troubling for a team that has drafted relatively high for the past 12 or 10-plus years? Is Arians bringing a magic wand with him? 
No, and he said he's he said as much. You know, he said, "Look, I got no magic wand or magic speeches." I think he said that can turn you guys into winners, and that you know, basically, the the players have to determine what kind of team they're going to have. I don't know that he missed on any guys that would be considered top ten at their positions. I, I, it is a team that could use more players. Uh, you know, I've always said you need four or five stars on each side of the ball. I mean, absolute studs, Pro Bowl level players. You know, perennial Pro Bowl players. I don't think they have them all on defense for sure. You know, are there guys, young guys that could emerge that way? I mean, look, they were really high on Justin Evans, but he got hurt last year, so I don't know what what he could become. I think O.J. Howard is a top 10. I don't know if you mentioned him. I think O.J. Howard is a top 10 tight end in this league. Um, you know, Brait has certainly scored like one. Um, so, you know, you got to develop guys to make them to get them in that level. As far as the draft goes, no, it hasn't been as successful as they needed it to be. I mean, you absolutely uh, went all in for a kicker a few years ago in Roberto Aguayo and used the resource of three draft picks, including a second rounder, um, and don't have anything to show for that. And that's that's a major uh, mistake in one that, that you pay for in terms of draft picks that could develop into those Pro Bowl caliber players. So, um, you know, when you look at the Vernon Hargraves draft when he was picked number one and Noah Spence was picked in the second round, um, that's another bad draft. You know, you, you need guys to, again, that are not only starters but develop into Pro Bowl caliber talents, and they, they just haven't done that on a consistent level. Um, so I would agree. I, I think that they don't have enough uh, real stars, on, on, especially on defense. They could use more on offense as well. Um, but we'll have to see if some of these guys, some of these young guys that they take, including in this year's draft, can can help them get there. All right, we'll switch to the Rays now. And Les asks, the Rays have a $50 million payroll. I understand their model, but if they miss the playoffs by just a few games and they could have had one or, or more of these free agents available then take their payroll to $70 million, then I'm going to be pissed. Am I wrong? Craig Kimbrell, anybody? <laughs> I love the passion. If he if he said it as, as as passionate as you did, that's pretty funny. I don't know if you should be mad. I mean, I think you have to give the Rays credit for what they have accomplished. I understand the payroll was seventy million, but you know that included guys like Carlos Gomez and you know people that you don't need. They found better players. You know they have a young team, uh, guys that they brought up throughout the season last year that are now going to be here, and and even some younger players that uh, you know that weren't here permanently last year that are going to make this ball club. Guys like Austin Meadows and some others. So you know you wind up lowering your payroll. Uh, when you rid yourself of some of these some of these veterans and some of these free agents that that aren't here, I don't think the Rays are done. I don't know that you know as we sit here on March seventh that we should suddenly you know declare it a uh, a failure if if you know if they don't spend the money and they don't win because I I think this team is still going to change. There is a closer out there. They probably want to see what they got in Jose Alvarado and some other people and whether they can do the job. But it's, it's not unthinkable that, that Kimbrell or somebody like that, that you would see him on this team. Um, we're, still, we're still a ways from opening day, and there's still, from what I know, a, a ton of, uh, of baseball talent out there. So uh, I wouldn't quit on uh, just what the payroll is going to wind up being. By the same token, look, the economics are what they are. Nobody comes, no one's coming to the games. They won 90 games last year. Uh, they have you know a stadium that they're trying to get built someplace. So, it, you know again, it's their money, and – I think they've built this thing the right way. They have to compete with payrolls that are three times larger than theirs, and, and they've done a pretty good job. I, w- I would give them credit. I would have faith in what they're doing. Last year I said they were going to lose 100 games. They completely remade their team. They wound up winning 90. So 
I am not going to criticize the Rays for the direction they're going or the money that they're not spending. At this point, we'll see what happens when they get in a regular season, if they have a clear need for a closer or something like that, and they just refuse to do something, then maybe you have an argument. But let's, let's let them get to opening day first. Well, one other thing with Craig Kimbrell, and I'd love to see him on this team. I don't think he's the same pitcher as he was a couple years ago. No. His best, clearly. but he's still one of the elite closers in the game, is that mm-hmm. there's talk that he's going to get a three-year deal somewhere. That's not what the Rays wow. do. If they could sign no. him to a one- or two-year deal, I think they'd be more than happy to sure. sign him and, 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 and would love him on this team. But they don't want to get into a three-year deal with the guy whose skills are on the, getting on the less. On the, yeah, he's on the, the downside yeah. of his career. I mean, he's still yeah. an elite pitcher, but – they're not going to give a three-year deal for someone like that. That's not what they do. They give one- and two-year deals to veterans like That's that. That's right. That's right. Rooting for UF asked, give us your Tampa Bay Rays starting lineup. All right, so in order to come up with a lineup, if I'm Kevin Cash, i got to know who they're facing. Is it a right-handed pitcher or a left-handed? Because you got lots of guys that can play you know, different positions as far as infield, outfield goes. Uh, you know, Certainly, in my 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 lineup against right-handed pitching is going to look different than my left-handed. But let me do this. Let me just say that uh, as far as the order goes, as the manager, I've decided Kevin Kiermaier is not leading off. Okay? That's just my personal choice. So I'm going to have Matthew Duffy. He's talked about he's not going to try to pull the ball so much. I know. But he's got to show me. I still don't want him as my leadoff guy. That's just me talking. I mean, I know they're going to bat him first. I agree. Look, I, here, I, I agree. I think he's going to lead off, and I think it's a horrible decision. That's just me. What I would do is I would let Matt Duffy lead off. He's not a great speed guy. If he's healthy, though, he moves the baseball a lot. He's going. He's got a good eye. He's going to get on base, um, and, and, and I don't know where else to hit him other than maybe ninth. So uh, I'm going to lead off with Matt Duffy, and then I'm going to hit Kiermaier second because I think Kevin Kiermaier – uh, is sort of that second leadoff guy, if you will, if the first guy doesn't get on. Um, but he's also a guy that it will force him to hit the other way. It will force him to use the bunt. You know, I, I don't have a problem with traffic in front of him necessarily. I know that's one of the reasons you lead guys off. But you only lead off one inning typically, um, and then the order you know turns around. So you really don't know how many times he's going to bat first in an inning anyway. But I think he's going to see a lot of good pitches. I don't think people are going to necessarily pitch, a, you know, can pitch around him because my third place here is going to be Tommy Pham. Uh, I like Tommy Pham in the third in the three hole. He's got a little bit of power. He can go to other other fields. I think Avisel Garcia is going to be the DH. Um, then I w- then I would probably bat G Man Choi. That's going to play first base against right-handers. After that, I'd probably have uh, either Joey Wendell or Austin Matthews next. One either way. Uh, if I'm going righty lefty, it'd probably be Wendell. Uh, go back then to Austin Matthews, and I would go Austin Meadows. Willie, Austin Meadows, I'm sorry, yeah, Austin Meadows, and then I would go Willie Adamas, and then I would my last place hitter would be the catcher Mike Zanino, who's not a great hitter, but got got a little bit of power in the ninth spot. That's that's my that's my lineup against right-handed pitching. What do you got? Well, against right-handed pitching, I think you're missing uh, Zanino's probably not playing against the right-handers. That'll be Michael Perez because he bats left-handed. Okay. So we'll Garcia, them out. Uh, Meadows, but I still think yeah. Zanino is going to catch more games than Perez. I mean, you think they're going to play? Yeah, no, or, I, I, th- or... I think Zanino will. And, and look, they're very okay. big on splits. So how many times yeah. has Zanino played this pitcher in the past compared to Perez and what their numbers are? Yeah. I, I'm just looking at a defensive standpoint. I know. I think you're right. Perez is going to go against right handed uh, pitching, but I think Zanino will catch the bulk of the games. But yeah, okay. 
I got you. Um, and also, you know, for instance, Blake Snell may have his own catcher too, so that affects that as well That's too. They true. may want to keep Zanino or Perez with him all the time. That's uh, true. You know, that can change. You know, when you're an opener day, you're going to play whoever the catcher is. But sure. Look, I think the ultimate decision with the race starting lineup is every day is going to be different. Mm-hmm. Is that mm-hmm. they look at matchups, not just okay. Here's our left-handed lineup. Here's our right-handed lineup. Because based on the matchups, Willie Adamas may bat first one day and he may bat seventh another day. Right. Same with, you know, Daniel Robertson or Joey Wendell or you name it. Kevin Kiermeyer may bat sixth one day and then second the next uh, based on who, who the pitcher is, what the matchups look like, what, what, who else is in the lineup with them, is that the Rays have a bunch of players that are, 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 can play anywhere. Right. I mean, they, they have created almost the ultimate utility lineup, essentially. I mean, mm-hmm. Kiermaier is basically a center fielder. Uh, Fam's going right. to only play the outfield, but everybody else, they're pretty much okay. Where do you want to play? Mm-hmm. You know, oh, you're going to play first today and short tomorrow, and second the day after, and then you go to left field. It's kind of like t-ball. You know, you just keep rotating people around. Yeah, and I mean, you know, wh- where does Brandon Lau play? You know, where does uh, you know some of these other guys that you want to get in there at, at times? You know, Guillermo Heredia. You know, where's where's he going to play? Yeah, I mean, the biggest question is, you know, who's all going to make the roster? Who's going to be on the team? Yeah, right. I mean, they, they're battling for spots. I mean, you you're know? In, you know, look, just look at your infielders. You've got uh, Matt Duffy, Willie Adamas, Daniel Robertson, Joey Wendell, Yandy Diaz, G-Man Choi, Diaz. Christian yeah. Arroyo, who everyone's kind of forgotten about. Absolutely. Because he got hurt last year. Brandon Lau. you got Nate Lowe coming up in the minors. Mm-hmm. You know, Andrew Velasquez was up a little bit last year. Who's making? I mean, you know, some of those guys aren't going to be on the roster come opening day. Who's and, on your ball club? That's right. And then the outfield, you've got you know Kiermaier and, and Fam. You know, is Austin Meadows going to make the team? And then Avisel Al- uh, Garcia, you assume well. Then is Guillermo Heredia not going to start on the big league roster? Mm-hmm. You know, you've got decisions to make too. So, yeah, it's ultimately, you know, the the Rays. The, one of the things they've done is is there is no set lineup. There is no set order there's no i'm only playing against lefties or righties it's what's what's going to be the best matchup we think gives us a chance to win today period that's right it's the analytics and they're going to play it and that's that's just how they're going to go and you may you may be a right-hander who hits lefties really well but this lefty gives you problems you may not play today Mm -hmm. you know because somebody else hits this pitcher better than you yep that's that's exactly right so it's hard to come up with but that's that's some good thoughts uh it's a good question and and we'll you know like i said i think you know, we've seen Joe Madden have what 108 lineups in a, in a season one mm-hmm. year. So I mean, you Rays know, may pass them not, this year. They may they may eclipse that because they have so much versatility at, at their positions. But the one thing we do know is Blake Snell starting opening day. Yes, he well is well deserved. Yeah, no doubt. Charlie Morton will be number two. So the opener <laughs> does not get an opening day start. We don't have an no. opener for the season. The opener <laughs> of the opener. Yeah, exactly. All right, Kyle asks a. High- Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hypothetical question. 
If the Rays somehow end up being no good this season, is it possible they trade Blake Snell by the trade deadline? I know Rays pitchers don't stay here long, especially in their prime, but would hate to lose him, but I know it will happen eventually. Yeah, you know, I don't think so. I could be wrong about that, and it, he would certainly be in his prime. I Look, he hasn't even hit off. his arbitration years yet. He's, right. This as is his last year got, before arbitration, so you got three yeah, more got years control. of team control after yeah. this. And you, and you keep that control as long as you can, and hopefully – I mean, the ultimate dream would be that they find out they're going into a stadium somewhere and they go ahead and chuck some money at him and keep him here for his, for his career. That would, that would be your ultimate plan. But you got three years to decide both on the stadium and Blake Snell. So, yeah, no, I don't, they're not going to – I don't see them trading him uh, anytime soon. Now, they get a deal they can't refuse, they well, would. Sure. I mean, but... my house isn't for sale, but if somebody knocks on the door and wants to give me a million dollars for it, I'm moving tomorrow. So that's the number, a million? Yeah, a little less than a million. A little less than a million? Okay. Yeah. It's over half a million, though. I can promise you that. Okay. But you know my point. Yeah, no, I, I'm just making it. Make me an offer, Steve. Come on. I'll move today. Hey, Come I on. just moved last year. I'm not looking in. I'm not in the market. <laughs> Neither am I. <laughs> I did get offers from people. They call all the time. I live in a great school zone because everybody wants to buy a house here. That's why we move for the schools. So. Absolutely. But, yeah, no, I, th- I mean, Blake Snell also has three years of team control. I would highly doubt he would be traded this year or next. You know, maybe by the end of next season, depending on how the team's going and and what the offers are. Yeah. Um, you know, I the agree. earlier you trade, the more you can get back. But with still three years of team control. Yeah. And, and they don't have enough starting pitchers yet where they would be comfortable getting rid of him. Right. Exactly right. So no. I, I can't. Even if they're bad, I can't see them trading him this can't year. Can't fathom that now. No. Yeah. no. Mm-hmm. All right. We'll switch to the Lightning. And Chris asked. Did the Boston loss last week expose any deficiencies going into the playoffs? That was a grind of a game, and we couldn't get the puck out of our zone. I realize we only have 12 losses and just crushed a very good Jets team, but did it expose any deficiencies? I don't know, Steve. You, you saw the game. I mean, I think that they were coming off uh, – I think that was the perfect time for a letdown game. I'm not saying that Boston wasn't up in a bit and played well and, and the Lightning didn't play so well. Um, so so perhaps, they, perhaps they figured something out. Obviously, if you're having trouble getting it out of your own zone, that's that's not a good recipe for the playoffs. But they haven't had that problem pretty much all year, and uh, it seemed like just a, a letdown game against a really good team that was motivated to make a statement, and they did. So we'll see what happens the next time they play them. But I I I can't get too juiced up about a loss when you've only lost 12 games all year. I just can't. They look tired in that game. It was their Absolutely. It, was, it was their third and four days. It was a back to back. Back to back. Louis Domingue was in net. Not, he's been very good. And he was fantastic in the game. He was great that night. Yeah. Um, but it was their fifteenth game in twenty eight days in February. Yeah. Um, they just looked tired. They they mm-hmm. were not they were not making the same plays they normally do. You know, generally, I mean, the Lightning will make some mistakes sometimes, but they generally are skating well. They just look slow and tired that night, and I, I just think you just chalk it up to. Yep. You know, it's it's a long grind of a schedule. Sometimes you get those games, and especially when you're three and four days there, uh, you know, coming off a back to back, Boston wasn't. Not that it was a scheduled loss, but it's just one of those games where they just didn't play very well. And, and as as well as they didn't play, it was still one nothing going to the third. That's right. You know, they gave up three goals. You know, about ten minutes, eleven minutes into the third period is when they gave up the three goals in like a minute twenty eight. But it was one nothing halfway through the third period. They were still in that game as as poorly as they played, so I, I don't think it's I, I don't think there's any deficiencies that were exposed. I, I think they were tired, and and one of the things and John Cooper says this all the time, 
over the long course of a schedule, you're going to have losses. You go, that's a bad loss, or you know, how could you lose to that team? But you, you have to look at, you know, in the in the regular season, you got teams that are coming off back to backs or have played their fourth game in six nights and all on the road. Yeah, that's not the case. And, and in you the had three days rest in the postseason. Everyone's yeah. got the same schedule. They're the same. That's right. The only thing that's different is between, whether you're in a hotel or you're you're home for that game. But everybody's got the same schedule. You got the same rest, the same practices, exactly the same, right. same everything. You know, you, there's so the schedule throughout a season. You know, like the Arizona loss early in the year. And granted, Arizona's become a better team, but they lost in Arizona seven to one, and it was probably their worst game of the season. But it was it was off a, a road trip, a five game road trip in eight days, all out west in three different time zones. They played in Vegas the night before, and Hedman and Palat got hurt that night before. And they came out in Arizona and laid an egg. Well, you looked at the schedule. You might have said they were going to do that anyway. You add everything else in. You can't sit there and say, oh, their season's over because that was a bad loss. Or, you know, during the season, you know, when you play 82 games, you don't win them all, first of all. I mean, they've, they've lost 16 games in, you know, overtime or, you know, in regulation as well. And they've still got 15 games to play. So you don't win them all. You're going to lose some. The Boston, I don't think it exposed anything. I think they just they looked tired, and, and Boston had some jump to their game. Yep, that's that's all it was, and and it's a long season for sure. Hey, thanks for the questions; those are really good. And you can always reach us uh, anytime. Don't have to wait for a mailbag, but you can do that uh, on Twitter at SportsDayTB, or you can reach me on Twitter at NFL Stroud, or my email address is rstroud at tampabay.com. All right, Matt Baker joins us now. And, Matt, if you're not uh, covering college football, we're going to find you at a racetrack somewhere near you. So this one is as close as it gets. (laughs) The Grand Prix of St. Petersburg, of course, is uh, this weekend. You will be covering it. You have been covering it uh, leading up to uh, to race day. Um, Just in general, I mean, this event has been here for a long time. Uh, I can uh, remember in its inception, uh, which seems I know it's not 100 years ago, but it feels like it's been – a couple of decades anyway, um, and it, it continues to, uh, to draw big crowds. What, what is it about St. Petersburg that the, that the drivers like, and what is it about, about this series that uh, the people in this area and from all over, I guess, the country like? Yeah, so this is the, I believe it's the 15th or 16th year in a row that it, it's been going on here. And part of the reason it's, it's successful is because it's been doing it a while, so it's been successful for a while. But what I mean mm-hmm. by that is, uh, people in the sport talk a lot about date equity, needing to know if, if I'm going to go to a race, it's going to be at this track at this time. And the Grand Prix has been a, a staple here in spring. Um, obviously, a lot of the IndyCar teams are based in Indianapolis, where it is cold. Right now, it's it's chilly today, but it's going to be, what, 70, 80 this weekend and Gorgeous not a cloud weekend, in the sky. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons why there's a lot of people that, that come here, down here for this. And you, know, you talk to the drivers um, and, and the teams, they like the fact, again, the weather's beautiful. The city has, has learned to support the race over the years. You're driving right along the water. It's a uh, cool street course uh, where, you know, a lot of courses like this, there's not many opportunities to pass. But here there are there are plenty, um, certainly three or four that are that are very good places to make up position. And you put all that stuff together. Uh, and the fact that it's been the season opener for the last several years as well, there's always a good amount of excitement for the series heading into this. And uh, this year is no different, of course. It's uh, from from just the standpoint of putting on the race, which you mentioned is important. I mean, there's a lot that goes into building the track and the barricades uh, on those streets and the fencing and all of that, right? Oh yeah, it's not something that just pops up overnight. I mean, I think there's it, something like 25 days of, of either setup or, or takedown, 20 million wow. pounds of concrete. I think it's like 40,000 feet of, of chain link fence, 12,000 
safety tires along the course. Um, And one of the more remarkable things about the Grand Prix and certainly the the people who organize it, Kim Green and Kevin Savory, will tell you that they're proud of the fact that over the years as they've gotten better at this, the time it's taken to build and then deconstruct the track has continued to shrink and shrink. That's important because obviously these are the city streets here in St. Petersburg that are being taken over for a race. There are businesses down there. They enjoy the race, but they don't want it up there forever. So the, the faster they can set it up and take it down, the better. And I, I know the businesses appreciate the fact that the race has you know, made steps along the way to speed up that process. You know, it's interesting because they've had this event here a number of years. Uh, a number of drivers have moved here. I mean, we remember, of course, the late Dan Weldon, um, who, uh, uh, you know, was killed about seven years ago, um, was a St. Petersburg resident. And there there are others that have made, made St. Peter, the Tampa Bay area, their home, right? Yeah, Tristan Vautier was in IndyCar Series for a little bit. Uh, he has lived down here in the past. And, of course, the biggest one is Sebastian Bourdais. Uh, you know, sure. he's lived here for a while. I think his wife if i remember right was in uh at usf for a bit and you know this is this is their home i mean he, he he's uh he's won the grand prix two years in a row it's actually the only race he's won over the last two seasons um but this this is where he lives i mean i remember martin finley our, our, our colleague talking to people just along the track after he won two years ago saying oh yeah we, of course we know sebastian he shops at our Publix." so he's just kind of a another st petersburg guy who you know the city means a lot to him he's done a lot for the community his uh Carding for Kids uh, charity event has raised over $400,000 to Johns Hopkins uh, All Children's Hospital over the last seven years. And uh, wow. he, City has meant a lot to him, and, and certainly he's done a, a heck of a job uh, at this race the last two years winning it. Got the home, uh, home road advantage, if you will, in knowing those streets. I, I just mentioned Dan Weldon briefly. There is a driver, uh, Colton Herta, who is going to honor Dan in a certain way. Talk about that. Yeah, so Colton Hurd is one of the more, I think, interesting guys in the, in the race this year. He's all of 18 years old, typically kind of a young hot shot in the series. And uh, Dan Weldon means an awful lot to him. His dad, Brian Hurd, uh, you know, hardcore racing fans will know that name. He raced for a number of years. And he was actually teammates with the late Dan Weldon for Andretti Green racing and uh there was a time when the the herdas were living out in california and when uh, the indycar series would go by there dan weldon would basically stay at the herdas house and uh, give this little kid uh colton herda candy when he was sponsored by by hershey's and then let him give him all the sugar and then ship him off to mom and uh so colton herda has a strong connection with with dan weldon uh even though weldon's gone and he's going to honor him uh, really throughout the rest of it probably the rest of his career um, Colton drives number 88 for Harding Steinbrenner Racing, but on the back of his helmet, it's number 98, and it's kind of the British flag Union Jack. Why? Because Weldon drove number 98. Uh, it was, of course, it was a Brit as well, and that's the number 98 car is what uh, he won the 2011 Indy 500 with when he was driving for. Colton hurt his dad, Brian. So, uh, yeah, definitely still some, some Dan Weldon, plenty of Dan Weldon connections here in St. Pete, even though he's, he's been gone uh, from us for a while now. Went to Dan Weldon. This is on a side. It's it's uh, apropos to absolutely nothing. But I, uh, we were <laughs> covering right. the Bucks in London. I'll just tell the story. It was, it, we were covering the Bucks in London uh, about uh, on or around the time that uh, that Dan was killed, and uh, got on a got on a train. He lives outside of London. It's a it's about an hour ride. I want to say um, in in sort of the the countryside, if you will. Just a gorgeous little. A uh, little bitty burg, you know, town where everybody mm-hmm. knows everybody. Just a really cool thing. And right down 
the street from him, I want to say right down the street, but you know, probably a couple miles, is is a racetrack. Not surprisingly, an open wheel racetrack where a lot of guys get their start, and it's still there today, and um, it's just kind of neat. So it was neat going over there and seeing. Um, you know, you mentioned you mentioned Great Britain and, and just exactly where he was from, uh, and how he's just as obviously more popular probably over there from his hometown than he is even even in St. Pete, where we this was his adoptive hometown. So a neat story there with Colton Herta. You mentioned, I heard you just a second ago say Harding Steinbrenner. Uh, that name seems really familiar as I sit here just a few miles from Steinbrenner High School. Would that be related to the former Yankees owner? That would indeed. Uh, this is George Steinbrenner IV. Um, it's the team that he co-owns. He, he's been in the, involved in the sport in a couple of years. Actually, his roots in IndyCar go, go back a ways. He's had family be involved in racing. He kind of fell in love with racing at an early age. Um, and he's been involved with Colton Herta for, for a couple of years as well. They've known each other for almost seven years now. And again, when we're talking about an 18-year-old driver, that's a long way. <laughs> it's 11. Uh, yeah. yeah, so uh, they've been together for a while, and uh, they were able to kind of move up the, the it's called the, the Road to Indy series, move up the ladder to get to IndyCar, and then... Uh, uh, George decided he wanted to take the further step and go from Indy Lights, which is kind of the AAA of this uh, series in this sport, and go in full-time in IndyCar. And he partnered with Harding Racing, which was a first-time team last year. And together, they are Harding Steinbrenner Racing. Um, and <laughs> I like, you know, obviously we think Colton Herta at 18 is pretty young. George the, the fourth, I believe, is 22 years old. So uh, <laughs> yeah. I, was, I, was talking, I was talking with Colton earlier today, and he referred to, to George as a kid. I kind of took a step back, like, <laughs> Wait, I mean, he's not wrong, but I don't, you know, I've, I've been doing this for a bit. I don't know how many players or athletes I've covered who have referred to their boss as a kid before, but here we are. Uh, he's a kid himself at 18, so that's that's pretty amazing. Um, you know, just in and of itself, how, how young uh, you can, and, and talented you must be to be driving uh, on on this circuit. You're going to write a story uh, coming up here in a couple of days. People can check it out on TampaBay.com about Scott Dixon, who is the, the reigning series champion. In talking to you, he's he's won five, I guess, IndyCar titles. <laughs> Has he done well in this race? Is this is this one that uh, that he's particularly fond of driving in? He's done okay. I think he would tell you not as well as he'd like because he hasn't won here. But he has finished yeah. on the podium a couple times, and he's had good wrong runs. They just never have seemed to be enough. And but mm. again, when we're looking at Scott Dixon, not being great is a seventh place finish. I mean, and that's the most <laughs> right. remarkable thing about him i mean I, I would argue in you know in today's sporting world he's probably the most dominant athlete most people don't think about or know anything about i mean mm. he's one of the the winningest drivers in the history uh, of this uh, of indycar and kind of its north american open wheel counterparts five series championships and in indy 500 as well it's remarkable what he's done and the most remarkable thing of his remarkable career is the fact that he's always just really solid he doesn't he very, very rarely has bad days. A bad day for him is going out and, and finishing six. He, he doesn't make the big wrecks that, that uh, you know, have you finished 27th or whatever it is. He's always solid. He's always in the mix. He's always in the mix to get a podium. And you add that up over year after year after year. And obviously that's why he's always competing for championships and should be in the mix for a championship and maybe to, to finally win the, the Grand Prix here this weekend. So if people aren't familiar, if they haven't been out to the Grand Prix, like what's some of the, what's some of the advice you could give them if if uh, you you're taking your family or you're just going out there to try to to try to see what this is all about? 
Yeah, so uh, obviously uh, you should bring earplugs if you are if you are so inclined. And, and, it's very and, loud, and, yes. Yeah, it's very loud. Um, I think in IndyCar and in auto racing in general is one of those things, kind of like hockey, where you can see it on TV and that's great, but unless you're really out there and seeing it yeah. live, that that makes it a completely different when you when you hear just yeah. how loud it is and when you smell the gasoline and the rubber and everything, mm-hmm. and when you see it all firsthand. It's completely different. Um, I guess one tip I would give, I mean, obviously you should probably buy a seat, although you can do general admission as well, but spend some time walking around the grounds. There's a lot of really cool stuff to look at, a lot of shops, a lot of different food, a lot of different kind of family entertainment aspects. Um, And if you've got the money, I'd encourage you, I guess I'm kind of shilling for the Grand Prix here, but uh, the paddock passes are pretty cool um, because that allows you into the paddock area, which is basically the garages. So obviously you can't walk up and high five the engineer and you know take a look under the hood. Oh, what are you doing? But you're really within a couple feet of these guys as they're working on fine-tuned multi-million dollar pieces of machinery that you know within an hour, a couple hours are going to be racing at high speeds across the you know the city streets here in St. Pete. So I think if, if certainly if you're a gearhead, that's something you should definitely check out. And I guess I'd say that one of the cool things about this event is how accessible all the drivers are. It's not like yeah. a lot of sports where if you want an autograph, good luck, kid. Uh, these people are very accessible. They know that they need to grow the series and grow the sport. And one way to do it is one photo at a time and one autograph at a time. All right, Matt. So I, I don't know how predictions go in uh, in IndyCar racing, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Who Who is the favorite? Who's going to win the race? It, it's, the, the list starts with Will Power. I mean, he's won the poll here, I think, at six or seven of the last seven or eight years. There was one year where he won it and then had, was dizzy afterwards, so he couldn't race. But he's always really, really strong here. If you're putting money on anything, not that I would condone gambling, um, but putting money on Will Power to win the poll is a really smart idea. For whatever reason, this course just suits him well, and, and he's won here before, too. Typically, the Penske guys are really strong this year. That's uh, Will Power, Joseph Newgarden, and Simon Paginot. Some of it's because that's the the backgrounds of their drivers. And I think Penske over the years, they've whatever secret sauce they have, they've figured out something that nobody else has. That's why it's not uncommon for them to qualify one, two, three, or something like that. So uh, you know, Penske's won eight times here. I wouldn't be surprised at all for it to be a nine. Um, and then you have to look at Sebastian Bourdais too. He doesn't have the car that a Penske or an Andretti has. But all he's done is win the, here the last two times. He's gonna, he and his team, Dale Coyne Racing, are going to figure out some sort of strategy that's going to get him in position where if things go right, he's going to be up there challenging for a podium. And he's really one of the most skilled drivers in this series. And, and I'll throw one more out at you, which is Alexander Rossi. He was the uh, series runner-up last year. Some some people might know him. He was on the Amazing Race a couple of years ago with, with Connor Daly. He's one of the IndyCar's attempts to kind of go mainstream. But he, in his own right, is an extremely talented driver. Won the Indy 500 a couple of years ago as a rookie. You know, was in contention to, to win here last year before he had a wreck with, with Robert Wickens late. So those are probably a couple of guys that you definitely need to keep an eye on. All right, so it's it's sort of racing all weekend long, if you will, um, in terms of uh, qualifying and just lay out the schedule for us beginning, I guess, on Friday, a little practice as well, right? Correct, yeah. So IndyCar is going to have their first uh, practices on Friday, and then all the other series will be kind of getting going, too. And I think there's a race or two on Friday. Saturday, IndyCar is going to qualify in some of the undercard races. Uh, those series will be racing. And then Sunday is the big one, uh, the IndyCar Green Flag is uh, scheduled for around 1.30 on Sunday, and there's plenty of other races out there as well. It's all weekend. 
And if you want to see uh, who's going to yell start your engines, it's somebody that everyone is familiar with. <laughs> Correct. Uh, it's Tony Dungy this year. Uh, in the past, uh, Gerald McCoy did it. Remember Vincent uh, Vincent Jackson did it a couple Vincent years Jackson, ago. Vincent Jackson, yeah. <laughs> he did a meet and greet with Elio Castroneves, who is obviously very accomplished, three-time Indy 500 champion, as charismatic and likable as you can be. It was so crazy to see their meet and greet. Because you know Vincent Jackson was all, what, 6'4", something like that, six, right? 6'5". Five. 6'5", six, five. Okay. yeah. 6'5". Elio Castroneves is, he's got to be 5'6", something like that. <laughs> I was going to so say it's hard, a good foot, yeah. Yeah, it, it's hard to imagine that both these guys are the same species, let alone both extremely professional, <laughs> extremely successful professional athletes in their own right. But yeah, this year it's uh, Tony Dungy giving the command for a driver to start their engine. Uh, he's going to have a pretty nice gig. Uh, you know, he, he's got that to start, and then he'll hop into the two-seater uh, to kind of help out with the pace lap. Uh, so he'll be in the back of a two-seat Indy car. The guy driving it is some Mario Andretti fellow. Oh, yeah, I've heard of him before. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, at least he's yeah, got a good driver. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, should uh, be fine there. Tony... Tony's not six five, so he might be able to get in the back seat or in that two seater uh, Indy car. So that that'll be fun to watch. Matt Baker, he'll be at the uh, Grand Prix of St. Petersburg all weekend long, and uh, we appreciate it, Matt. Thanks so much. You can follow him on TampaBay.com. Thanks, Rick. All right, so we do have, as you know, have a busy uh, weekend. We get the Grand Prix of St. Petersburg as we just discussed. The Lightning hosts the Red Wings at Amelie Arena. That's always a, a good encounter. A lot of Detroit people down this time of year. I'm sure they'll try to make their way over there as well. USF, how about their men's basketball team going for their 20th win of the season uh, this weekend against SMU? That's something to look forward to in the conference tournament is just coming up next week. And, of course, Ray's spring training continues. So we'll talk about all of that on Monday. Make sure you're here with us. And, uh, folks, as I mentioned, if you have a business you'd like to grow with us, our sponsors are showing great success advertising. We have lots of ways you can do that. Just contact us again on Twitter at SportsDayTB. Uh, and we'll be happy to tell you about uh, all the different ways that we can help you grow your business as we grow this podcast. For Steve Verstink, I'm Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay Times. Have a great weekend, everybody. We'll talk to you on Monday. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 